I'd say to your rock stars, if you're not a lead singer, you know what? Take a day and be a lead singer on your rig and sing a song and punch in and double it and try some harmonies and compress it and work on it and and learn what it's like to to sing a vocal and how to stack them. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Hey, Rockstars, it's your host, Lid Shaw, and welcome back to Recording Studio Rockstars, bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is John Fields an internationally recognized multi-platinum writer, producer, and mixer who has worked with some of the biggest names in the music industry, from rock bands like Switchfoot, Jimmy World, Lifehouse, Goo Goo Dolls, and Andrew W.K., to chart-dominating pop acts like Jonas Brothers, Demi Lovato, Selena Gomez, Miley Cyrus, Pink, and the Backstreet Boys, to dance and electronica artists like Harmar Superstar, The Presets, and Cut Copy. A multi-instrumentalist virtuoso, John will quickly jump behind the drums or piano or pick up a bass or guitar to lay down a part when needed. And this ability, combined with quick decisions in the studio, makes for a super fast, efficient, and fun session. In fact, Jordan Valeriat, also a guest on the podcast, had mentioned assisting with John on a session in the past where he got to watch John in the studio and described him as seeing tracks being created at lightning speed that sounded like a finished record before they even got to mixing. John is also an in-demand co-writer, having penned songs with Dan Wilson, Nick Jonas, Selena Gomez, Australian superstar Vanessa Amorosi, and others. And occasionally he will hit the road with an artist as he's done playing bass with Nick Jonas in the administration, the Rembrandts, and Soul Asylum. I'm really excited to find out what we can learn about recording and producing records from John, A big shout out to Matt Mahaffey for suggesting this interview and making the introduction. Please welcome John Fields to Recording Studio Rockstars. John, are you ready to rock? Bring it on. (laughs) Dude, thanks for being here, man. I really appreciate this. Um, We don't have to go into it, but you had suggested that you don't do this very often. So we feel particularly special and and appreciate you taking time out to talk with us. No problem. Looking forward to it. So I sort of read your own bio back to you there, um, but fill in some of the gaps for us and tell us more about who you are, you know, where you came from and how you got into recording. Well, I started off as a kid in a suburb outside of Boston. And um, I guess the long and short of it is that when I was about 10 or 11 years old, my uncle Steve had the biggest hit song in the world. And that song was called Funky Town and the band was Lip Sync. And I had a piano at my house and I used to tinker on that. And my uncle would come into town. He was from Minneapolis and jam with me on that piano and show me chords. And, you know, at the time we were just playing hits of the day or Beatles songs or whatever. And I just kind of caught the bug. And uh, around that time in like in 1980, he had this huge hit song and uh, which he basically produced, wrote, and played most of the instruments on it. That really affected me. I mean, I didn't see it happen because I lived in Boston and he was in Minneapolis, but this is before the age of video. So 
he just had a hit song. There was no touring. It was just a one-off and he, he made a great song, got signed, put it out and it just caught fire. And that summer it was massive. It was, it was number one while number two was Paul McCartney. It's coming up. I think number three was another brick in the wall part two uh, by Pink Floyd and then Call Me by Blondie and Ambrosia's You're the Biggest Part of Me. Also huge songs for me, but those are some big competition. And <laughs> and uh, Uncle Steve was holding him off for four weeks in the summer of 1980. So wow. that really affected me. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to do this. This seems like a really fun thing to spend your life on. So uh, over the next several years, he started kind of mentoring me and Every once in a while in the mail, I would get something like a phaser pedal or a drum machine, a wow. Yamaha, or, uh, you know, it had all changed when he sent me his TIAC Porta Studio in about 1983. And I just started freaking out on that thing. And the rest is history, I guess. Um, well, that's a trip. So and now you said Funky Town, not the original Funky Town. This was a uh... This was, no, this is the original Funky Town. Wow, man. Wow. Like, That's won't incredible. you take me to? I love that tune. <laughs> yeah, it's a masterpiece of, in so many ways, there's no other song like it. The form is weird. The It's like major, it's minor, it's just, it's got it all. And of course, it has the futuristic vocoder, which, you know, still today is one of the biggest, you know, when you hear that, you're like, whoa, I yeah, love that. <laughs> yeah, and it's also sort of, defines the the disco sound in a way where you know the kick the snare the bass they're all sort of just right you know yeah and i could actually i mean i could do a podcast just on that song if you want as i do multi-tracks and i've studied them so much but he did play one instrument at a time so it was a kick loop and then the snare and then the hi-hat then the tambourine and it's pretty amazing so uh yeah and it doesn't really sound like other songs from that year it just sounds all modern. I mean, it literally was probably the first auto-tune. I mean, that vocoder basically is auto-tune. Yeah. And uh, it's just an amazing, amazing influence on me. So thank you to Uncle Steve. Uh, what, I apologize for not knowing already, but what was Steve's last name? Steven Greenberg. Steven Greenberg. Okay, great. Thank you for that. I actually never knew anything about the backstory on that that song, and I love it. Well, very cool. So you get this incredible influence from within the family. You're in Boston as a kid growing up. Boston is also a great musical center, you know, particularly at that time. I've been gone from there. I grew up in Boston as well. I've been gone for so long that I don't really know much about what's going on in Boston now. But, um, you know, the 80s were a time that we had the um, new kids on the block coming out of Boston, right? Am I, am I mixing that up or am I getting that no, right? No, that's right. It, it was, I mean, I would say in my era, it was a little more new Addition, not not yeah, new addition. Mm -hmm. um, before that, I would say, Mister Telephone Man, Candy Girl. Then you had the Cars, of course, that came out in '78, yeah, yeah. and Aerosmith were there. Yes, and a lot and Jay Giles. Yes, um, R.I.P. Yep, just uh, yeah. you know a lot of amazing stuff. But um, that you know, although it was for me, it was all about what was on the radio, and you know, there was no internet in those days. So you're just like being fed hit songs on, you know, F105, if you remember that station. Well, I remember in high school, you know, the, the introduction of the classic rock station. And at least I thought it was brand new at the time. And I, and I think it was sort of a new genre, but it, they were there playing all this music of the 70s and all the rock stuff, uh, all the things you're mentioning. 
So I feel like I grew up really loving that. And sure enough, you know, if I'm going to go out and have fried chicken with my daughter on a weekend here, we're going to go find the place that only plays classic rock. Nice, there. nice. Um, but, but well, that's very cool. So talk more about what you did. I mean, how long did you stick around the Northeast before you went to your next destination to make records? Yeah, so just in high school, I pretty much was in the basement for tracking away. I eventually got... Uh, sequential circuits, six track synth and started playing, you know, literally jump by Van Halen and purple rain for me were maybe, maybe even 1999 by Prince. Mm -hmm. Those two records, you know, in terms of synth just started like opening up my world. And uh, because my uncle was from Minneapolis, I kind of knew about Prince pretty early. I mean, I'd been listening to the records since the first one in, in 78 or 79. And, uh, always wanted to get those little dit, 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 all those little synth sounds. And then Eddie Van Halen came out with a song that had no guitar on it. I mean, think about that. Yeah. Jump. No guitar till the solo. One of the first keyboard parts I ever learned. Yeah, just unbelievable. And you're like, so, you know, you go to, it, it wasn't Guitar Center in that day. You might remember it was like LaSalle Music. Mm-hmm. I think it was where I bought my synth in Waltham. And, uh, you know, you, you hear kids playing jump, basically. <laughs> it's like that. It's like stairway to heaven at the guitar center. That's but true. Back was, then it was, yeah. Was there jump. now, of course, if you walk into guitar center, you're just, it's just this cacophony of fast guitar licks going on from every direction. But was there this brief period where you'd walk into the store and it wasn't guitar licks. It was all just synth parts for a sec. In the room. It was just, it was just Lidge, it was just jump and only jump. That was it. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> you know? Thank you for giving us such a good quotable quote there. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I, I, what happened is uh, just in that basement over and over, being terrible at music, being terrible at recording, but just having this mentor, Uncle Steve, I would send him my cassettes and he'd be like, this is great. This is great. And of course it was not great. I mean, I actually have those cassettes and trust me, they're not great at all, but he was really encouraging. And, uh, as soon as, you know, college came around, I was like, I want to move to Minneapolis as soon as I can. And, uh, I, I came into a little parental interference there as they knew that if I moved to Minneapolis, I would drop out of college and just be a musician. So they said, you need to go to college on the East Coast where I went for two years. And by the end of the second year, I said, I'm going to be leaving and moving to Minneapolis. And at that point, they couldn't really fight me. So in uh, 1988, I moved to Minneapolis and continued on with a little college and kind of drifted away from the college thing. And I, I still never graduated. Sorry, mom. (laughs) No, it's all right. I mean, I I sort of did a similar thing, but I think you're wise to just sort of get out of it and go with the thing that you really wanted to do. I sort of stuck it out and did a full four years of architecture and I've never worked a single day as an architect. So you have that skill set. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) I can still fall back on it. I think my daughter even joked about that the other day. She's like, daddy, you know, maybe you could still, you know, do architectural drawings. (laughs) Awesome. Um, well, so, all right. So Minneapolis, and did you go straight into working in studios there and, and sort of spend some time there? Yeah. Um, my uncle had at the time a little office, like paneling, 1970s looking wood paneling office that shared a building with this luggage company. And he, at the time he had a, a Kai 12 track 
which was the, you know, like they were beta cassettes. They looked like beta cassettes and they had 12 tracks of audio and one additional SMPTE track that you could lay down SMPTE and then you could have 12 tracks of audio. It was great. I think it had a DBX, 12 built-in mic pre's, literally a one-piece mixing recording unit that was just amazing at the time. And I literally moved into there. He, he gave me the keys to this. I mean, it wasn't a studio, but it was a studio. He had a Lin 9000, a DX7 II, an Emacs, a Jambox, a Mac SE, and opcode software. And he said, learn how to use this. I'll wow. see you later. <laughs> <laughs> and I, 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 you know, and I just, I, I've it was seen crazy. those Akai things. They're very cool. It's sort of like a, a console desk yeah. unit with a mixer, and then you just sort of lift up a little plastic lid and pop the beta cassette in there or something? Yeah, it basically was a VCR with like a Tascam mixer attached to it. Was it analog uh, or digital? It was analog. And it was, you know, if you remember, I, I used to mix, you know, before I had a DAT machine, I used to mix to Hi-Fi VCR, Hi-Fi VHS. I remember that, the F1 format, F1 or something like that. Yeah, and it, I think it was something similar to that where it was, you know, cause you used to be able to record, you know, stereo audio on a VHS and it sounded really good. So I think it was something to do with that. And we used that for a while until, you know, I would say in about 1991, we split an Otari MX 80 and bought a 24 track machine, which is the cheapest 24 track machine you could buy at the time. And, and cheap means a, like, 10,000 bucks or I think it was 30,000 30, believe it or not. Wow. Yeah. And that was the cheap one. I think the expensive one was like 90,000 that had AutoCal. So so uh I'll pause for one sec. I refer to our listeners as the rock stars lovingly, but rock stars, I want to encourage you to stop complaining about the cost of anything in the recording studio these days. It's never been more affordable. Absolutely not. Yeah, it's so so I mean absolutely or whatever. <laughs> yeah. All right, sorry, continue. Okay, so yeah, had that, uh, the Otari, and we bought a Tac Scorpion. That was cheap. I don't know, that was probably a couple grand. And he said, this is again, Uncle Steve saying, you know, figure out how to wire that together. And he, he hooked me up with some guy in town that we were using punch blocks because it was cheaper than buying, you know, Mogami cable or mm -hmm. whatever. And literally at that point, I'm just, you know, just thrown into the fire here, you know, a guy showing me how to wire. He starts me off with the first hour and he says, all right, here you go. I'll see you later. And I had to wire the whole thing. You know, it turns out later, I didn't really know this, but I was always wondering like, why did my overheads sound weird when they're recorded on tracks five and six? And you realize because, because I was wiring them out of phase, I didn't even know. <laughs> so, but you know, it worked for, for my purposes. It was, it was fine, but you know, you learn, you live and learn, I guess. Yeah. But so we had those those two units, and that really opened up. You know, we're still at the time locking to Simpty because I was doing at the time the music I was kind of focusing on was, I guess at the time modern R and B, which was like this new jack swing period, and uh, we're talking like ninety one, mm -hmm. ninety two. I think I had just gotten into the brand new heavies. Oh, I love and, those guys. That the he just, heavy heavy rhyme is one of my favorite records. Uh, yeah, I love that. And um, I, I started, you know, at, when I got to Minneapolis, I was hanging out with uh, my uncle and, you know, he's 20 years older than me. So I started meeting kids around my age and that's when I started getting in bands. And of course, because I had this studio, uh, I could record the band. So I started recording my band and whoever else would want to come over. And I think we charged 10 bucks an hour back then. Mm -hmm. It was called Satellite tracking. 
And, you know, there would be a guy with a drum machine and a keyboard want to come in and record two songs. And I would just do that. Or then a reggae artist would come in and trade his wares instead of $10 an hour for studio time. (laughs) And uh, it was kind of eye-opening, just all these different projects that would come in. Occasionally it'd be like a, a voiceover or just what it wasn't like we were advertising or booking out the studio, but just by word of mouth and uh, learning on the fly how to quickly, you know, record, mix and make them happy. And uh, but really it was about finding local bands. And, you know, that was just about being young and, you know, in a band and you meet other bands and you're at your gig and the the band you just opened for, you say, Hey, I have a studio. You want to come over on Friday and record? And they say, of course. Yeah. So what was the name of your band back then? What was your band? The band was called Q, the letter Q. Oh, nice. Easy to spell. I can even write that down right now. It was uh, was about, (laughs) it it was because my favorite Star Trek character was Q. Awesome. Awesome. So what, tell us a little bit about your mindset at that time. I mean, did you sort of here you are, you got this studio, your uncle's already enough to aspire to right there, you know, within the family. But did you sort of had outside inspirations or aspirations for what you wanted to do musically? Or were you just sort of enjoying doing what you're doing? And that was good enough at the time? No, I always wanted to be Todd Rundgren. That was really the the key for me it was just, which is a player, a producer, a writer, a mixer, kind of a jack of all trades. I mean, his records to me are still the most important of, of any in my history. I mean, I guess, you you know, I don't have to say that the Beatles were the most important band to me, but I call them the Beatle disciples because I really wasn't around for like the actual Beatles. Mm-hmm. So people who love the Beatles, like Todd Rundgren mm-hmm. and Crowded House, for instance, you know, Neil Finn and, and the Rembrandts. And just, I love that and Jellyfish. And, you know, that generation of kind of, not the Todd and Jellyfish are the same generation, but just like Beatlesque music. That's what I was kind of going in the early 90s. But I was in this super funk town, pretty much, Minneapolis. And you just can't help it but be, you know, there's prints in the air mm-hmm. everywhere you go in Minneapolis. Every band. And, you know, there's also the replacements and and like this more rock punk scene, but all of that kind of, you know, mixing together in my brain. It's like you get a band coming in that wanted to, you know, that was just like two guitars, bass and drums. And then you'd have like a full on R&B group with horns the next day. So I was kind of, you know, mixing up all those influences and uh, being a Todd Rundgren freak kind of that was about more about mixing and recording and doing it all yourself. And, uh, you know, his album Acapella that had come out really affected me because he sang all the parts um, himself. And it was amazing. I got to see him briefly down here in Nashville years ago. He came and played a short set. It's pretty cool. I, I actually didn't realize that Minneapolis was such a funk town. I mean, I knew that Prince was from there, but I didn't know that Funky Town was done before that. And obviously the title of the song sort of implies that that's what's going on there too. Um, what yes. were some other influences? What what made Minneapolis such a funk town? Well, hard to really say exactly why it went that way. I mean, Prince was really what, I mean, there was Jam and Lewis. I mean, Prince basically started and then the, the time was the offshoot. You know, Prince basically started a band for his friends from high school. And that included Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, Monty Moyer, Morris Day, Jelly Bean, and... 
Jesse Johnson. And all of them ended up most. Yeah, most of them became big record producers and songwriters. Actually, all of them had hits mm -hmm. uh, for other people. And then uh, Jam and Lewis started making the Janet Jackson records here and started their own studio. And it's just, you know, post Purple Rain, it just took off. And so, you know, if you lived within 500 miles of Minneapolis, let's say you're from Iowa and you're like a up, up and coming, you know, musician, you're, you're going to move to Minneapolis. Yeah. Wow. So what happened was just the scene exploded and, and not just in the R and B funk world, but just, you know, all of it, just the, it's, it's a big town and there's a lot of live music here today. Even it's just, it's a, it's an easy place to live and gig a lot. Yeah. Well, so you, you talk about Todd Rungring as being, you know, your who you wanted to be at the time which is, I would say, is not necessarily funk, right? It's a little bit more of, like you uh, said. No, a, not a, Yeah, the Beatles disciple. Um, but <laughs> yeah. so were you sort of pulling away from that funk thing a little bit, or was it just not your thing and you were you're sort of gravitating towards the next thing? How does that go together? And I still have to think that you probably learned a ton about making funky records. Yeah, that was just, um, I never let it go, and I'm still today. I mean, that's, you know, one of the core one of my core like musical influences is basically that's just the Prince Minneapolis sound, yeah. but there's lots of other things to do in music. And, you know, you have a recording studio, you're going to record whoever comes in and you don't get to control who that is really. You just, you, you know, somebody wants to book a session, you do it. And you know, that what happened was I started, you know, I had a, that we kept upgrading the studio and we ended up building um, a really nice studio in about 1992 and got an Amec Einstein that had VCA automation with a, with an Atari 1040 ST attached to it. And hmm. I started making demos for, you know, indie records. I mean, sometimes demos, sometimes, you know, indie records. And those bands started getting signed in the kind of mid nineties, some of those bands. And that turned into a producer career for me because you're the guy that, you know, I was just a guy in Minneapolis making the demo. Well, that band gets signed and then that band chose me to make their record when they actually did get signed. And I was off and running at that point. So it was just, just kind of happened. Were there already a lot of eyes on Minneapolis and what was going on there so that you, do you feel like it made it a little easier to get noticed or did you sort of go in pursuit of those connections going out to LA and, and interacting with labels as much as possible? No, actually it's funny the the, I'm trying to think the first like major label record I made actually was a local artist, Tina in the B-Sides uh, in 97. And she, she, I had made the demo. She got signed to Sire Records. She told them she wanted me to produce the record. They did not have a problem with that. They added uh, that if we wanted, we could get someone else to mix the record. So, you know, Tina said, who would you want to mix? I said, well, the only one guy, Jack Joseph Puig. Nice. So... <laughs> We went out and mixed the record with him. I went to LA. That was like the first time, you know, where I'm working in Oceanway Studio and seeing it really done in front of my face. And that really changed me too, just just kind of watching him work, being in that environment. And I, you know, I realized at that point I probably should be moving out there at some point. What was and, what was the year? Uh 97. Okay, all right. And what were the records that Jack was mixing right at that time that were really like, exciting. You know, the reason I chose him was because he mixed two Jellyfish albums, you know, in 90 and 92. Right. And I just, you know, those are like core major, major records for me. Yeah. And, and then, you know, I mentioned Matt Mahaffey as being our mutual friend. 
I know that those were huge records for Matt too. He really introduced me to. Oh, them. and we, yeah, when 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 Matt and I met, actually we met in '97 as well. A record company guy had set us up. I think Matt was on tour with Self, landed in Minneapolis. And you know, Matt obviously biggest Prince fan. So yeah. he he's in Minneapolis, kind of probably freaking out like I'm in Minneapolis. You know, calls me up, says gets my number and says, "Hey man, I'm here playing a gig." Uh, I said, dude, come over to the studio when you're done. Let's cut a song, which he did. And we cut that song glued to the girl that day. And that's the day I met Matt. And I watched him work in front of me. And that really blew my mind. Um, He also brought in that Nord lead keyboard that I had never even seen before. And that all that was just I was, you know, eye opener. I went the next day and bought my Nord lead because of Matt. That's great. Well, so Matt is also somebody that I know to work incredibly quickly in the studio. He just creates stuff really fast. That's how I've heard you described. Let's talk about that process a little bit. What do you want to say about working quickly in the studio? How do you make records so quickly? And like, what's your mindset during that? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's morphed over the years, but really where it's at now is when I, if you're working at my studio, you know, my studio is set up and wired as such that I have 56 inputs available, uh, you know, in Pro Tools, and they're all the chains are already pre-set. So you want to play an acoustic guitar, that's all set. You've got a mic pre going into an EQ, going into a distressor, which could be in bypass or not, and you just open up input 13 and you're playing acoustic guitar. Same thing, you want to play a drum kit, uh, you just open up these nine tracks and it's ready to go. I've already dialed all the sounds so there's no waiting. You're not mm-hmm. waiting to like, hey, you know, I've, I've been in sessions where it's like, let's try a, a U47 on the upper tom. And, you know, there's a the assistant goes to the mic closet, comes out. It's like, got to warm it up, got to set it up. And just like, screw that. I want it all set up fast and so that I can work on the music and not work on the tech part. So really for me, it's about having your chains set and ready and being prepared for whatever might happen. Obviously, if you have a horn band coming in, you got to have your your horn set up, ready to go. And that includes headphones and, you know, routing for and, and labeling the headphone boxes and all of that, making it so that it's just so fast so that nobody is waiting around for any technical thing. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, obviously the only thing that, you know, you, you crash a couple times a day and that's a, a nice rest, <laughs> but you know, we used to rewind the tape deck and have that same rest, but, yeah. um, so working fast, that that's the thing is having the chains and then just, you know, committing to your musical ideas fast. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, have you ever given that same advice to somebody who's always recording? Well, I mean, I imagine you're playing a lot of music yourself too, but this same being set up always works for even if a band walks in to just record with you and they've got their own kind of thing going on. Do you, you, do you just sort of adjust your setup slightly for them? Yeah. I mean, a lot of the times now it's like, you know, bands are usually from out of town, so they're not bringing their drum kit. Mm-hmm. Uh, they might, you know, the kick, the, the, the drummer might bring his kick pedal. Um, and his sticks, but I've got a really great collection of kind of all instruments and know what is going to work for that band. You know, sometimes if we're, if I work out of town, sometimes I go to Nashville or somewhere else, London and record, obviously we have to use the gear that they have. And, um, usually I spend the first half a day setting up the studio to be like mine, which is, you know, just everything's up and ready. And, and I don't even have the band there. I was like, like you guys show up later. And I set it all up first. So that's, that's really, that's part of working fast. 
mm-hmm. I think the other side is really about, you know, just being quick at your, you know, at Pro Tools and with your musical ideas and like comping and just all of it. And I think that's just a testament to like doing it every day for a long time. You just get fast. Okay. So that brings up two things I want to say. One is Matt also had similar suggestions. He says, you know, his his tip for Pro Tools was use templates, you know, like pull it up where a lot of things that you do and do repeatedly are already ready to go and set up. So nobody even is waiting for you to set up your Pro Tools session, despite how fast you are. And then my next question for you is, you know, you're talking about developing skill sets with your tools, right? Like Pro Tools, you know how to work really quickly in it without thinking about it. What about switching and trying new stuff? How often are you tempted to switch and try out this new DAW, this new DAW or some new system? Or do you just, have you decided, you know what, it's more important for me to be fast at this. I don't even care if that new thing that just came along has all these features. My feature of being fast at what I know is more, more valuable. Yeah, that's, I definitely agree with that. Uh, I would love to switch to something else if there was something else as good Obviously, you work with a lot of kids now who are using Logic, and I'm just blown away by the tones they're getting and the, you know, the internal synths and all that. But and I do have Logic and it's behind, you know, I have it on my desktop because every once in a while a band brings in a song. You need to open up the demo and pull in something off the demo. So I know the basics. But man, you start trying to get in there and edit a snare drum and it's just like, what tool do I use? It's, right. it's, it's totally frustrating. So, you know, uh, and then, you know, the other one is Ableton Live that I'm starting to see a lot of people use. And uh, this this audio to MIDI feature, which is really intriguing to oh, me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You can do a beatbox and it'll just create a little mini drum set out of it. And it knows kick and snare and hi-hat. Just it's crazy. So, I mean, that at that point, that's like, you know, put in your your sample or the record that you want to, you know, copy from the 60s. Um, and then just get MIDI and then point it to like your own sounds and, you know, go from there. So I, you know, I'm interested in that, but I just don't think I have the time. I feel like to get good at logic or get good at Ableton live, I'd, I'd need like a week, two weeks, three weeks, a month, a year, maybe. Yeah. I thought you were going to say another 20 years. (laughs) Yeah, maybe, you know, it's, but I, I'm jealous of people who can do that. I mean, I also cannot read music and that's the same thing when I see like a cello player come in and just rip a song that he's never even heard before. Amazingly, you know, yeah. and, and by reading music. Yeah. And it's like, he's reading music and I'm just like, this is insane. How come I cannot learn that? And it's, you know, maybe it's just old dog nutrients, but uh, just, it's well, never going to happen. I know. Same thing with Matt Mahaffey. Matt also never, uh, you know, he doesn't get into the music reading or the theory so much, but he'll yeah, sit I at remember, the piano uh, and play this incredible I'll, stuff. Uh, I will always remember Matt. We were doing a session. I was producing a Mandy Moore album and I brought over Matt to play keyboards on it. And we were at this really cool vintage studio and they had all this cool gear. And I think it was like some weird Roland synth that we pulled out from the from the early 80s. And Matt just starts jamming on it. And I'm like, what, what's up with that? I mean, it's a great part you just came up with. He's like, yeah, I, he says, uh, it's kind of like typing, he said. <laughs> It's like, I just pick some, I just find the key and I type. <laughs> that always cool, was man. intriguing. Well, all right. Well, that's encouraging. I mean, I, I like the fact that you're intrigued by new stuff and what it might be able to do, but you don't doubt yourself in terms of if you've got a skill set and you've got abilities on tools, 
you don't necessarily keep feeling like you need to switch your tool set out. Just just have it ready. No. And I really like that advice about having the studio set up to go. I have always run my studio a little differently here in Nashville because I have different kind of sessions coming in. It's a small studio. And so I sort of have this zero the studio out mentality and set it up every time. But I liked hearing you talk about come to Nashville and and just set it up the day before. So that's always been my thought is like, hey, I want to know what the tracking yes, is it, tomorrow and set it up tonight. You know. Yeah. If you share your studio in any way, it's, you can't do it this way, you know, or you have to agree on a setup. So, you know, I, like I don't even have a patch bay. I just have, you know, if I need to change out a mic pre on a snare drum, I literally have to like go behind the racks and change the XLR to a different pre. And so, you know, you tend to not change, change your stuff, but you know, over the years you learn what you like and you know, you're never going to change that snare chain. I mean, are you really? <laughs> well, and you know, it's kind of nice because your system is like, you know, if you dial in a sound, why should I have to refigure it out again tomorrow and the next day? Just like keep right. tweaking it. You know, and, and the records do, and you know, you could, you could argue that, but all your stuff sounds the same, but uh, you know, that's not true. It's, it's really about the musicians that are playing on it and, yeah. you know, the song and everything. So, you know, it could be the same drum set the next day, like literally the same dead Ludwig Toms, but they work. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we're used to the idea that our computer will start up and look like it did yesterday. So why should our studio right. not necessarily start up and look like it's... I mean, you yesterday? could almost say in, uh, that the entire studio is a template, you know, for making right, music. Right, right, right. And I like your philosophy of saying, like, what would you rather be doing? Um, plugging in, uh, you know, ho hooking up words and phrases like conjunction, junction every morning or um, getting down and making some music. You know? Exactly. Let's talk a little bit about your process. You, you mentioned working with Paul David to me, and you said that, that you guys had really come up with this important process of, of uh, sort of mixing a song as you create it and handing it back and forth. Tell us a little bit about that process. Yeah, so uh, up until, up until uh, 2008, I'd been working mostly mixing my own records unless there was a request or unless the artist and I decided we wanted to have an outside mixer. like somebody like Clear Mountain or Chris Lord Algie or JJP or Mike Shipley or somebody like that. But, you know, I had to do it myself a lot of times, and I was pretty confident about that. And uh, my buddy from down in Nashville named Will Owsley had kept telling me, he's like, you got to meet my friend Paul Hager. He's amazing. And, uh, you know, it just turned out that we were in the same studio one day. Paul pops his head in. And he's like, hey, man, what's up? And so we had lunch and I talked to him about maybe doing something together. And he had a little studio. He still has the same spot in Burbank. And uh, he was very into outboard gear and SSLs. And, you know, he's an amazing, amazing mix engineer. Mm -hmm. And but I didn't I don't have time for SSLs and, and really budget to book mix day sessions at an SSL. And then if you need a recall that, I mean, that kind of was over for me by then. And I said, Paul, if we're going to work together, we're going to need to be a hundred percent in the box and we're going to need to have identical pro tools setups down to the plugins. And he said, well, let me try it. So I gave him a song, he mixed it. And the way that that works is I will finish a song. Let's say I work for a day or two on a song with a band and let's just say it's a one song project. So we, we, track it the first day, come in the next day, kind of clean it up, uh, keep tweaking the mix and everybody's happy with it. And then at that point, I will, nine times out of 10, I will send it off to Paul and 
in a Hightail document, I'll zip the session with all my plugins, with all my master bus chain, everything's on there. Sometimes even some live auto tunes are even on there. Mm -hmm. And he will grab it sometimes the next, you know, in in the perfect world, he does it the next morning, which I love. (laughs) But And he double clicks that zip file. Next thing you know, he's working on the song. He immediately dives in, fixes the phasing problems on the drums, adds new samples, cleans up everything, cleans up breaths and vocals, and and sometimes will radically change things, just does what he feels. And he will send me back an MP3, and I listen to it, and I say, this is great, uh, but the hi-hat seems a little loud, or the bass is weird. Can you go back to what I had before? And he will then send me that fresh Pro Tools document with uh, additional audio files attached. So it'll be like a zip document with, you know, the, the name of the song, Pro Tools, document and maybe eight audio files. And you look in that, what they are, and it'll be like some audio suite stuff that he had, you know, processed and right. So he's not sending you the full session back. No, because I've already got that data. So literally I will take those eight files, slam them in the audio folder, double click his session. And I'm now seeing and hearing a completely cleaned up, amazing sounding song that I was kind of done with yesterday. And now it's even better. So we, you know, that was how we started that in 2008. I think the first full record we did that way was uh, the Jonas Brothers' third record, Lines, Vines, and Trying Times, um, in I think it was 2008. And ever since then, we've been doing everything together. So it's Very a really cool. cool process if you have someone that you trust and have someone that has your same gear. You know, it's cool to be able to just like, either you're collaborating, but you're not together. And a lot of the times Paul would be on the road because he, he tours front of house with some big acts. So he would be like in a hotel in Phoenix, Arizona. And I'd say, Paul, can you please open this song and just put in an hour? And, you know, he'd log on to the hotel Internet and literally on a pair of headphones or these little Bose travel speakers that he has, fix up my drums and make them better. And, you know, to be honest, I don't care where he's doing it as long as he's doing it. I'm happy. <laughs> That's great. I like that testament to working with good people over, you know, good gear. But also, I'm going to rewind a tiny bit and geek out with on a detail. So, Rockstars, what John's talking about is Paul would send him a zip file that just has the session that Paul did, and it's only got the additional audio bits that John didn't originally have because Paul added them. And then John talked about taking those audio files, putting them back into his own audio files folder for that session, take that session that um, Paul sent, drag that into your um, session folder. And then when you open it, Pro Tools will sort of find your files and find John's files and and have the session back together. So I just wanted to clarify that detail to help people. Yep. Well, that's awesome, man. Um, Let me ask you this. When you guys are handing sessions back and forth, do sessions become bloated? Do they start to get too many plugins on them? What do you do to sort of uh, simplify it and you know, keep consolidating or, I mean, like maybe, maybe that's what you do, but how do you handle sessions getting bloated so that you can do all this work and then commit to things and, you know, have your computer freed up to keep moving forward? I mean, we, it's a lot of the times like Paul will send a vocal through an 1176. He has an amazing set of outboard gear. So, and that's just like committing and, you know, Pro Tools commit or just, you know, bouncing to an audio. And then he will leave the, the track that it came from, you know, inactive right above it 
and not hidden so I can see that he kind of printed that track. If we need to go backwards, we can go backwards. A lot of the times, you know, we've run into problems where I will send him a track. It has a couple live auto tunes on him. He opens it up. He's like, this auto tune's all weird. Why? And I say, what version are you on? He's point oh and i said oh you need to do the upgrade i'm on 8.1 so you you know one issue is you do need to keep up on all your plug-in you know updates mm -hmm. so that you don't run into issues like that but you know bloated not really i mean he does add a bunch of stuff he also takes off a bunch of my stuff he doesn't like what i've got he'll change the bass chain and if in fact it gets to a point where i can't open the session because you know ozone 7 is taking up too much and all of a sudden i can't even hit play I will just print some tracks and so, and or I'll ask him. I mean, we've even done stuff like he'll take his the entire drum kit, you know, 15 tracks of drums through a bunch of subgroups and he will just print it as a stereo audio file and then make inactive that 15 tracks with 100 plugins on it so that it's just easier mm -hmm. to work with. And if we ever have to reverse engineer, we just, you know, go back, open up those drums and turn up the hi-hat if we need to. So We've got workarounds for for the bloating thing. Yeah, and if you wanted to edit that stereo file, do you keep it grouped with the individual disabled tracks and just sort of edit them as a group sometimes? No, you don't. You don't edit the two mix of okay. the or the that 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 yes, that can be trouble. Yeah. Okay. All but right. Good. No, you got to go back and you know, unless you know for sure that you will never need to, you know, change that drum arrangement. Well, let's talk about drums for a sec. Drums is a particularly challenging instrument. Um, for people to record in the studio, I think, and it's probably because it's a whole collection of instruments. It's, it's the most mics we use on anything, usually. Um, yep. Talk a little bit about, you know, you, you when I listened to your playlist, you had a lot of productions with very tight sounds, and then you have some with sort of live rock drum sounds. What's the difference between recording tight drums, live drums? How do you approach those differently? Um, and also tell us about your studio that you work out a lot and what the drum room is like that you're recording in. Okay, well, I think I just have a taste for crisp, tight drums in general. I mean, and that comes down to the actual drums and how they're tuned and treated. So I'm not really that into live open toms that go, you know, like, no, you know, you might think it's cool at the gig, but man... <laughs> nothing like a floor tom that goes on for seven seconds to really kill your session um then you're like putting pillows under the floor tom and so i have you know worked on my drums i have several drum kits um a shout out to sugar percussion because i love my my new sugar drum kit that i've had for a couple of years um amazing drums in particular the snare drum and i've got a rack of snares and and a ludwig dead kit and a a little Questlove breakbeats kit for, you know, smaller, jazzier tones. I've got, you know, vintage Rogers. I have some new stuff as well. Mm -hmm. And they're all set up with, you know, the kind of heads that I like and the right moon gels and duct tape. And some of them look like, I mean, I've, I've had the same, I've got like a Don Henley dead snare, I call it. That's like, you know, the Eagles, you know, right. I can name you the songs that it's on. I mean, it, and I've never changed the head in like 15 years. Um, <laughs> in, you're not allowed to touch that drum in any technical way other than hit it. And it just does this particular thing that nothing else does. And, you know, so I've got over the years, I've worked on getting a, a setup where, you know, depending on the song, you just pull out, you're like, I know 
I need a tangy Ludwig metal sound on this one. So there's the drums themselves and the cymbals. And then there's the mics, which are, you know, nothing special. I got what everybody else has. 57s, D12, um, coals on the overheads, uh, a stereo telefunken on the room. Uh, but I really don't care that much about those mics because it's funny when I go to other studios, my drums always end up sounding the same. Mm-hmm. It's like when I when I go to another city and work on drums, I you know it's weird. It's like they just something in me gravitates towards this certain sound, mm-hmm. and um, so there's that. And then in my studio now in Minneapolis, uh, it's called Creation. It's a, it's a old studio. It's a hundred year old building that used to be a vaudeville theater. And it's been a recording studio since about the fifties when Bruce Swedian turned it into one. Um, he's from Minnesota and he basically built this as a recording studio. There's two, there's three rooms in the building, but I have the smaller studio, which is a really dead, like it was built, the, this was remodeled in 1984. And at that time it was all about dead. So it's, it's super, like you, there's the room mics almost do nothing. It's it's kind of frustrating actually. Yeah. But I have workarounds for that. I have a basement with an adjacent basement with concrete walls. So I put a mic down there and I can get some ambience down there. But right now it's really dead, and you can get some really really dead great focused tones here. Let me ask you this. I mean, you may have already answered it because you talked about going to different places and gravitating towards the same drum sound. But do you feel like your path in recording in different spaces has been one where you're sort of visualizing where you're trying to take sounds and everything you learn about recording takes you there? Or do you feel like you've accepted that each space you're in just has its own thing and you just sort of try and learn what that thing is for that space and just embrace it around production? Yeah, because a lot of the times you're not in an optimal space. Like I worked a lot in this. Uh, there's a guy named Ducky Carlisle who you should interview in Boston, who's this amazing producer engineer who has a studio in his house. And the living room is one of the best drum sounds I've ever heard. And, you know, the control room is the basement. The living room with a nice, you know, vintage wood floor is just fantastic. And sometimes you got to work in a studio like that. That's not, you know, there's no runners. It's not the record plant. Um, you know, I like to call them like bong water basement studios <laughs> because it's just, you gotta, you gotta work with what you got. You know, don't use channel 11. Um, rock stars don't know. drink the bong water. Don't drink. I mean, the bong yeah, water. exactly. <laughs> the classic is, you know, where the, you know, it's, it's always in the, like the third tier town. Like, I don't know, I'm not going to name names, but you know, let's just say there's a studio in the middle of. Nebraska or something. Right, right. And uh, the guy's got a U47. He's like, I traded in all my stuff for this U47. And I had this local guy fix it. And then, of course, you pull it up and it sounds like absolute shit. (laughs) And you're like, dude, did you know that this is, there's something wrong with this mic? He's like, oh, it's a U47 though. (sighs) Yep, but it's bad. Let's pull it. Do you have a Shure? (laughs) Like, what's (laughs) the new mic you have? I'll even take a audio tech and take a 4033 because at least I know it's going to work. So, um, there's that. (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of like, or the studio you work in where they've got a tape machine and you're like, uh, okay, let's, can we align it? And they're like, well, you usually just have somebody come every few years and and align the machine. (laughs) Exactly. I remember one studio I went to, uh, I was going to do drums and, you know, the assistant, and I told him what I wanted. I said, I want, you know, D12, 57s around, blah, blah, blah. And I get there 
and the setup has been done for me, except he has inserted EQs and compressors on every track mm-hmm. uh, outboard. And I just like, can we please just take all those out? Um, so he, he thought that that was what I was going to want. But in fact, I don't want any compressors on any drums. Yeah, let's talk about that. So I, that's sort of something I, I learned working with Steve Albini as he would cut drums that sounded great. And we weren't using compression, maybe on the room mics, but that was it, you know. And again, I thought that, oh, well, you should cut it through a distressor, your snare, and, and slam it. It'll sound awesome, you know. And you get to mix and you can't do anything with the drums. Talk about um, why you don't cut with compression or EQ on the drums. Well, as a guy who mixes other people's projects all the time, you know, you get a, nothing like that kick drum that comes in that has more snare in it than the kick. And, you know, how does this happen? Was the mic like 10 feet away or what's going on? No, it turns out we had a distressor on the kick because it makes it great. Well, I mean, I just learned over the years. I I was like everyone else. At first, I was like, oh, my God, we're going to put a compress the room mics. It's going to sound like Led Zeppelin, you know. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, there's no turning back at that point. So I learned just and the safest way to work is to have no compression on anything. I mean, honestly, the only thing I compress right now in my current setup is vocals and maybe an acoustic guitar. Nice. I discovered this the hard way, doing live sound for a friend. I was trying to make the vocals sound like I would in the studio with compression and make them hot, but then I could never feed them back into the monitors because they would feed back on stage, you know, and and I realized that wasn't going to work. And I've also set up a session with for vocals for somebody else to come in and sing. And I start dialing it in the way I think it's going to work for me in the control room. But then I go put on the headphones and sing into the mic. And I've realized that sometimes it sucks to hear, have compression on your vocal in the headphones. Have you run into that? And have you found that for a vocalist, they prefer to have no compression where you've got all this dynamic range going into the headphones? Or is that just uh, bullshit? Not really. <laughs> I mean, honestly, the opposite. I've had people want more. So on my input channel for vocal, I've got a couple plugins, you know, DSP style plugins inserted that are ready to go in, you know, in bypass, but it's a, like a channel strip with some, some compressor on it, some compression on it and reverb, like a mono deverb mm-hmm. plate at like two and a half seconds or whatever. Just so if they say, you know, can you put a little sauce on this? You're just like, bam, it's on. And it's and on the track, on it's their on vocal that track, track uh, you know, on the singing, on the input of that vocal. And same with the compressor. Sometimes they're like, start singing quiet, but you don't want to jack up your mic pre, um, but the, but you want them to hear better. I mean, we also can have feedback in, I mean, I've had feedback on headphones. It's oh, so yeah, loud. me too. Some of these people listen to their stuff. But uh, no, so I, uh, honestly, I've never had a request for less compression on a vocal. Okay, but I like the same mentality, which is, Maybe what I'm recording doesn't have to be the exact same thing as what they're hearing in the headphones. Maybe they can hear something that works for them, and I can hear something in the control room that's going to work for me for the record. So that's a great answer. Right. Other than that, we are both listening. In my world, I listen to exactly what they're hearing. Right. So I wouldn't have, we wouldn't be able to turn off the reverb for me. But yeah, temporarily, I don't mind listening to reverb while we're tracking a vocal. Yeah, dig it. I like that. That's a great tip. What else do we want to talk about in terms of vocals? I don't even know what to ask. Just tell me something I don't know about recording vocals. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. So, I mean, for me, that's like, that's the the core of producing records is the vocal. Everything. It's like, uh, yeah, drums, kick drums, all that. It just doesn't matter. 
unless you have the vocals right. So, you know, if I had advice for anyone, it's, it's, it's figure out how to coax amazing vocals out of a singer. And, you know, that means if that means singing stuff to them and saying, sing this, or here's an ad lib idea, or this is the harmony that you need to sing. I mean, to me, that's really what separates great producers from not so great producers is maybe how to work the vocals. Mm -hmm. And so, and that, you know, I don't know if that means I'd say to your rock stars, if you're not a lead singer, you know what, take a day and be a lead singer on your rig and sing a song and punch in and double it and try some harmonies and compress it and work on it and, and learn what it's like to, to sing a vocal and how to stack them and learn about like when you see and hear rushing vocals. I mean, nothing worse than rushing, (laughs) you know, you got to move those. You got to learn how to nudge vocals back. And, you know, when you have eight harmonies backing up the lead vocal, you got to look in there and see, you know, why are those K's all like, you know, what's going on with that? You got to, got to learn how to fix that. Sometimes you got to erase some, sometimes you got to, you know, crossfade into the, uh, you know, sometimes, I mean, I've had to sing in my own breath because the singer was gone and I need a breath before the second word. Interesting. So, um, Leave you know, the you asses off it. the double too, right? No, oh, you ass, don't have to put ass in there. Yeah, sometimes, unless they're feeling good, you know, if they're feeling good, you don't touch it. But if sometimes if you have like 16 S's, you're definitely going to want to, you know, use just a couple. And then when they're panned out, you know, listen on headphones too when you're mixing to make sure that some weird S is not on the left side yeah. that you don't realize. Yeah. So, you know, uh, uh, just focus on the vocal production, I guess. Doubling vocals. What are some things that are going to cause problems for the singer when you're doubling? Do you keep them both panned to the center? Do you find that it's helpful to pan one off to the side so they can hear, separate their own voice from the one they're doubling to? Any tricks about yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, that's up to the singer pretty much. I've found that I'd say 50% like it in there on, you know, some are say pan it left and put me right or something, you know, and then, I mean, honestly, I just made a record this last month with a, with a guy from England who is deaf in his right ear. So he only has one ear and you got to think in mono for this guy. When he listens to a mix, he listens twice, once on one earbud and then again on the second earbud and he'll make you comments and say, Hey, that uh, delay it's only on the right side. I heard it on the second pass, you know, so you just got to be ready for whatever the singer wants. And, you know, I, I imagine when the Beatles were doing it, I think it was in there and they were just kind of doubling. But again, tell your singer, take that, take one ear off, take one ear off. There's no better cure for pitchy vocals than taking an ear off. Yeah. Have you ever uh, had somebody be pitchy with an ear off and then they put the other ear back on and all of a sudden they're singing great? <laughs> Absolutely. So in that case, you know, <laughs> go with it. But yeah, it's always uh, peculiar to me when that happens. That's very cool. Um, have you worked with Max Martin? Um, so yes. Somebody that you work with. I, I have. I, I'm, I just sort of recall hearing similar stories about him being very specific about what a vocal part should be and really, really guiding somebody in the studio like that. And I, I just like that idea. Sometimes, I, we, we know, first we overproduce when we start out and we have to learn to back off. And then we have to learn how to get back in the game again, it seems like, you know, and really not be afraid to tell people what we might need to suggest for a musical part, a vocal part, even an instrumental part, whatever. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, you got to be open with your artist and who you're working with. And that's about just trust. And I mean, it's not like, you know, you walk into, I've had younger bands come in and they're just like, whatever you say, whatever you say, but I don't want that. I want a collaboration between everyone in the room. There's no like producer, you do it my way or that's it. Uh, There's none of that going on with me. It's pretty much everyone's got an even say about what we're doing. And we're just, you know, working towards a goal of getting the greatest song and recording of that song as we can. So I like when drummers are sitting around in the control room all day. That doesn't bother me. Some people like to clear out the the control room. And I like having the the bass player in back, even though he has no bass tracks today. Every once in a while, he will say, some guy will just, you know, yell from the back of the room, hey, what if that was uh, twice as long or something like that, you know? (laughs) And all of a sudden, your song just got better. Yeah, And it's because they're invested in the project and they, they really want the best. And, you know, so collaborating and, and musical part wise, you know, it's just really, if you have an idea, please say it. All right. Now, you are know, you also advising new interns to chime in like that on day one of the session? Of course not. <laughs> but uh, I have had interns whisper to me. I mean, I've, I've had a few assistants over the years and, you know, they'll, you know, if you get comfortable yeah, and they're comfortable, you can tell if the band is going to be cool with saying, hey, that snare sounds off, you know, or something. I don't really have a problem with it unless they start spouting, you know, weird ideas and concepts or, or maybe doubting, you know, anyone's idea. No, that's not a good idea. Yeah, you shouldn't be saying that if you're an assistant. Right. But if you're in the band and you're making that record with me, I want to hear from you. Yeah. I want to know what you think, why you think that's better. And let's just do it. Um, I like your suggestion of what an assistant or an intern might do to be, really be helpful, which is to whisper in your ear, you know, at an appropriate time, if they're hearing something, uh, hopefully we're working with interns and assistants that are great and have great yeah. ears and great ideas. And so, you know, if they if they think they notice something that you might not have noticed, they're just going to lean in and try and be helpful to you as the, as the engineer producer. Yeah, I've gotten a text from my assistant here and there. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> you know? Um, the channel is off, by the way. <laughs> uh, all right, so yep. uh, let's see. What did I want to ask you? Um, last question, then we'll take a break and come in for the jam session. Talking about drummers, I was surfing around your YouTube channel, and you had this great video of a drummer named Michael Bland, and it was pretty incredible to watch. Can you talk about who he is and what it's like working with him as a drummer? Uh, Michael is just a force of nature. He's one of my best buds. I met him in the early 90s in Minneapolis at the time he was playing with Prince. You might have heard him on, I mean, his biggest Prince songs are Sexy MF, Diamonds and Pearls, and Cream. And he's in those videos, so you'll see him. But what many people don't know about Michael is that he has perfect pitch, that he has a full-on encyclopedic knowledge of all pop music. Wow. Just everything, full, all the genres, and can tell you, what that chord is on piano or, you know, what the harmony is supposed to be. And, and he's just really, really a full on muso. Like I've really one of the top musos I've ever met in my life. So I would bring him in on sessions a lot to play drums. Not only is it impressive to have, you know, Prince's drummer or, you know, I think he's played with Maxwell and Shaka Khan and he's currently in Soul Asylum. And we, I've made three albums with Soul Asylum with Michael. So we've done a lot and a lot of studio time together. And we just have a great working relationship about working fast and, you know, 
he's really great because he'll come in and just like any great session drummer, you hear the song once, you talk about what the vibe should be and you go do it. And two, two takes later, it's done and it's amazing. So uh, I would bring him in on sessions when I was, when I, you know, sometimes I don't even know what the idea should be, what the drums should play. And he will always have that for you. So not only is he creative, he also can mimic a programmed part, you know, down yeah. to the ghost notes. So it's really cool to have him around. And then he'll sing some background vocals and play some keyboards on it too, which is always a great bonus. That's cool. Roxas, I'll try and include a link to this video I was talking about in the show notes. But uh, this was, a, I think, a Jonas Brothers session. And you just were just shooting a video of him playing down a take. And maybe it was the second take already. But what was remarkable to me was here, I'm watching this guy and the drum part was so simple and it was so precisely exactly right on. He did not play a single wrong note in the entire song. You know, it was just like- Yeah, he has really great, you know, uh, short-term, I mean, short-term memory is the, you know, the greatest skill of a session musician is remembering that the second time we go twice, the third time we stop four, the right. fourth time we end on the end. Right. You know, you got to remember that stuff, especially, you know, down in Nashville, they're, you know, they're, those guys are excellent at remembering uh, when the peculiar little doubles and so forth are. So yeah, I'm, well, we also know, cheat. We write it out on a piece of paper and call it a chart. <laughs> I know, but I, I just did a session. I might, you know, one of my favorite guys down there is Ilya Toshinsky. And man, is that guy just a musical powerhouse, but man, his short-term memory is so insane. You play a banjo part and then you double it with a mandolin part and it just interweaves perfectly. And it's just like, how do you remember that? It's the same chords as the song yesterday you did at a different studio, but it's a new, fresh part. That's great. Well, another thing that I watched Michael do, which I thought was cool, is he uh, sort of like perfectly evolved the drum fills. It's like, yeah. you know, it wasn't too much at the beginning and it wasn't too little, you know, two thirds of the way into the song. And um, yeah, that's each, something. Each chorus. Yeah. Each chorus you would, you know, he, the first chorus, no fill. Second chorus, a little fill. Third chorus bigger fill, you know, yeah. he's very thoughtful like that. So what about fills? One thing that I, I feel like I've finally understood is that maybe people don't understand initially is that drum fills to me are all about the vocal. They're like, so Dude, I've often. never thought about it like that. There's this amazing YouTube video of, of this guy down in Nashville that, that analyzes all the drum fills. I'll, I'll send you a link. It's amazing. <laughs> cool. That'd you know, cool. everyone talks about the Pat Boone, Debbie Boone, right, right. or the Motown fill. Uh, bucket you know. of beans, bucket of beans. Yeah. So uh, you just, you know, what fill should you play? I usually just have an idea of like, this is what it should be. And, and I, you, you know, I mean, I play drums myself, so I will do it a lot of times or I'll program it in or, or request, you know, by the session drummer to play this way. I guess that's another, I guess, thing to learn if you're, you know, up and coming producer is, you know, sit down to the drums and learn how to play them. At least figure out how to play a beat and figure out what you're talking about when you make suggestions to someone. And that will help loads when you're working with, you know, random drummers over the years. Yeah, I think when you're working on songwriter stuff, if you can understand the kick, the snare, the guitar, acoustic guitar strum and the vocal, you're most of the way there. Totally. Agreed. Um, all right, cool. Well, Rockstars, we're going to take a break for a sec. We'll come back in for the jam session. You can find links to everything we're talking about in the show notes, which will just be right on your listening device. If you're on your iPhone, 
go into the podcast app and there should be stuff to click through, including the YouTube links right there. And um, we will see you guys in just a moment for the jam session. Hey everybody, it's Lid Shaw, and I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of Recording Studio Rockstars. I really appreciate you, and I really appreciate your time. And as a way of saying thank you, I've created a special mix tutorial just for you, Rockstars, totally free, called the Mix Master Bundle. With it, you get over two hours of detailed videos watching over my shoulder as I mix a song in my studio. Plus, I give you the free ebook that explains how I recorded the tracks, and you get downloadable multi tracks so that you can practice your mixes, including the Pro Tools session file, using nothing but stock plugins in Pro Tools, all of which you would find in any other DAW, whether you're on Logic or Studio One or Reaper. Maybe you're struggling with trying to improve your mix technique, or maybe you just simply don't have access to multi track files or can't record a full drum set in your studio. I wanted to give you a chance to create your own mixes from full drum kit, bass, and guitars recorded in my studio. The song is called American Winter, and it's off my instrumental record, Skadoosh, and it's all available for you totally free right now. All you need to do to get it is text Mix Master Bundle to 33444, and I'll send it directly to your email. Again, that's Mix Master Bundle with no space to 33444, or you can go directly to MixMasterBundle.com Enter your email, and I'll send all the files directly to you. Thanks so much, Rockstars. We'll see you guys in the jam session. Cheers. Hey, Rockstars. We're back now for the jam session. My guest today is John Fields, joining us from Minneapolis. Is that where you are right now, John? Yep. Okay, cool. And uh, we're going to jump in and, and jam. You ready to jam, dude? I'm ready. All right, cool, man. When you started out in recording, what was holding you back? It's probably that I sucked at music, <laughs> like terrible musician in high school. And so it was hard to, you know, you're recording yourself. So your music is not that great. But I guess that would be if there was something holding me back, it was that. But, you know, I learned over the years how to be better. Uh, so you already had a taste for music at that point. You just didn't know how to put it together yourself. Yeah, you know, I'm listening to the Doobie Brothers and and analyzing, hey, there's a string line that comes in on the third verse of What a Fool Believes. You know, what is that? But um, never really could, you know, at that point could not really play the song. So I learned. That's great, man. Well, obviously but, you do a great job of it now. Um, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> so uh, how about some of the best advice you received? Um. When I started mixing in the early 90s, my uncle Steve would come over. I, I'd, I'd get the mix up on the board and he'd come in and critique the mix. And he'd say, I remember this one thing he'd say, if you want to hear it, make it hurt. <laughs> Which I, like I still, that. to this day, you know, in other words, put a point in the mid-range on it and, you know, turn it up. Yeah. Like, there's nothing I... I I have an issue with, you know, working all day on this amazing part and then turning it down so you can't hear it. Yep. It's like, if you do something great, turn it up. Um, Roger Mutino, another great producer here, had given me advice similar to that once where he said, every time he tried to perfectly balance everything, he'd end up with a shitty mix that had no depth and that the best way to do it is you're gonna, if you're going to turn it up or down, do like at least 2 dB, you know, something like yeah. that and make a bold move and, and your mix will end up with more depth. Definitely. 
So that's cool. Um, tell us uh, Steve's full name one more time for listeners so that they can uh, we can really write it down. Uh, Steven Greenberg. The band is Lips Inc. L-I-P-P-S Inc. Awesome, man. So now how about sharing with the rock stars a recording tip hack or secret sauce, something that they could use on their next session today? <sighs> Let's see. You know, one thing that I could suggest is don't save it for tomorrow, whatever it might be. If it's comping the vocal, comp that vocal while you're sitting there with the singer in the booth. I mean, that's what, that's how I do it. Mm -hmm. Like decide with your singer that the first verse is great. We're moving on. Not like, hey, uh, later I'm going to go through this 16 playlists and, you know, figure out what the best second line is. I mean, yes, granted, you might tomorrow want a new second line, but pretty much let's finish this now. And I, I kind of use that as a mantra for my whole production philosophy, which is just, you know, do it now. Don't wait. Don't sift later. Let's have the top playlist represent what, you know, if we were to be done right now, this should be great. So I like that. I, guess, I think that's a know, great way to work. It certainly leaves room for creating more music sooner because <laughs> you're yeah, not still working on the one from yesterday. You can always go back with this Pro Tools playlist thing, but, you know, do you really want to go back next Thursday and start comping the vocal again? I mean, nothing dreads me more than having to reapproach a song that, I mean, I was in it on Tuesday, but now it's Friday and everyone went home. I don't want to go through that vocal now. Yeah, totally. Well, so now, so I guess if you're doing that comping in the moment, you, sort of as a group, you begin to feel like you're getting sick of it. So let's not keep working. Let's, let's you know, let's call it as opposed to creating a whole ton of work for yourself to save later, you know, burning somebody out and then just pretending like the last thing you just did, we're not going to use anyway. So oh, yeah. Matter. I mean, I, if there's any, I mean, I'm all about less takes and less singing. And, you know, I, I you know, it's funny that the, one of my, is it a pet peeve? But, you know, when a singer goes in and I say, you know, maybe I'll start a song and I'll cut we'll a little drum beat. We'll have an acoustic guitar. And I'm like, just go in there and cut a vocal quick. Just get a guy, you know, throw a vocal on there. And like, well, this is just the guide vocal, right? Mm -hmm. Um, maybe. Yeah, sure, course, but don't sneeze in the middle of the take. Yeah, but still, it's like, you know, so many times I have used a lot of that vocal and there was no drums. They, were, they weren't even playing to like a band. So, you know, but you just got to say, just take it. So, you know, save everything, but um, don't wear out your musicians. You know, you don't need to take... 32 takes of the second verse. Just take as many as you need. If that means two, then be done with it. Okay, so you're listening. They do a take that feels pretty inspired. You hear a couple of things that could be different. How often do you just kind of say, let's go to those two lines and punch them versus like letting them just do another pass? You know, in other words, do I you mean, do another pass when you feel like you already heard something that was pretty cool already? Yeah, I mean, I want at least two. You know, yeah. there's just in case something's wrong, but, uh, no, as little as, as little as if it's just that one line we need, then we'll just punch a couple of those lines. You know, another thing I always do is you got to sing into the line and out of the line. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're going to, cause that breath and the spacing between, you know, line three and line four, you're not going to sing it the same way unless you sing it all. So I always say, keep singing, keep singing. Don't just stop for the word that you need. Right. Um, so but yeah, as a philosophy, the less singing, the better. And then, you know, you can always come in tomorrow and take another second verse. I mean, I like doing that. Hey, can we beat the second verse? But when we're done, we're done. I like it. 
So if you hear something that sounds pretty good, don't you don't have to try and beat it. Just, well, just... it's like, is it within the Melodyne realm of awesome? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is another, probably my, the answer to your next question. All right, yeah. So let's, about... uh, let's talk about a favorite. Uh, well, so we're, we're going to do hardware tool and then software tool, but um, we can do software tool first. So tell us about a favorite software tool. In yeah, studio. I mean, I'm going to say Melodyne. It's just if, if you don't have it or use it, and, you know, this could be auto-tune or waves tune in... in graphical mode. I've just never figured out how to use those, but basically your, your vocal editing pitch and timing software, just get into it and, and really study it, learn all the intricacies about it because that can save your life. And you can do so much with Melodyne in on a lead vocal that, I mean, I use it on guitars, on basses, on, on things that I need to stretch I say half of what I use is timing and that's getting into the lead vocal and really nudging the syllables around till it feels right. I mean, who knows when you're singing at home, you might have latency on and you're singing to something that's not even, it's not even recording the right way. Right. Like, and all of a sudden your stuff sounds rushy or lazy and you're wondering what's going on. Well, Melodyne can fix that for you. You know, you can also nudge in pro tools just by hand, which I also do, but if you really, I would just say my favorite software is, is Melodyne. Okay. So quick question. Um, Melodyne, when you use it, do you use it as a plugin instance in the Pro Tools session on the vocal track, or do you like to get everything out and open it up in Melodyne on its own? Um, I used to, I, when I had, when I was in LA, I had an assistant with a second studio B and I would have to use the standalone version. So I would consolidate eight background vocal tracks and over iChat, send them to the backroom computer. And then he would do them on the standalone, send me back a zip file. I'd open those, double check them all, export them, pull them into Pro Tools on a separate playlist and be able to go back between, you know, original vocal and Melodyne vocal. But once I started using Melodyne on the track in Pro Tools, it really, my, my world totally changed because you can't really work on timing um, when you're just listening acapella, I suppose you could have a rough mix in there too, but I never did that. So now I love having it on the track so that I can really focus on the timing, which is, I mean, pitch is great, but timing, man, can't say enough about it. Are there any obstacles that you, you somebody's going to be typical to run into as far as how to manage the transport, you know, play, rewind, play from here, that sort of stuff when you're using it within Pro Tools, or is it pretty straightforward and simple? The weird part of that is the undo. So when you undo, is it a, sometimes for some reason it undoes the last thing you did in Pro Tools, not the edit you just made in Melodyne. I don't understand that. That might be a bug, but so maybe that, maybe weird. the undo is a button on the on the Melodyne window or something. Well, like that. you it does sometimes it does work though. So most of the times it does, but every once in a while you'll hit undo and it like separates some region on the kick drum that you did three minutes ago, and you're like, what what just happened? So. Uh, <laughs> There's that, but you know, the tools are pretty simple. I definitely suggest using a trackball like a Kensington expert mouse uh, or one of those planks that Apple makes with the mm -hmm. magic pad thing. Cause right clicking in Melodyne really gets your tools up fast. And uh, you know, but you still use the Pro Tools kind of space bar stop and play situation. Okay, cool. I like the but idea yeah. of using it within Pro Tools because I think you know that whatever timing you're hearing, that's the timing you're going to end up with. So that probably doesn't exactly. make it easier. 
All right, cool. So now how about a uh, favorite hardware tool, something physical that you like to have on sessions that just makes your sessions better? I love to have uh, an analog delay on an aux, on a Pro Tools kind of send. So I like to print a vocal, like a, an analog slap or like some regeneration. And I don't want it necessarily in time with, you know, obviously you can put you know, echo farm or whatever on a track and MIDI tempo, 102 beats per minute and all that. But sometimes just having like an analog delay or an echoplex or a Roland, um, what's the Roland tape dealy oh, deal? The, the uh, space echo 201. Yeah, like having a space echo just on an analog outer Pro Tools and then a analog in back into Pro Tools, like, you know, pick an output. Output 16 goes to the, to the delay and out input 16 comes in from the delay. And literally when you're done with your vocal, just take a pass, be wacky, be crazy, lay down some, you know, spin the knobs, go do, 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 do all that fun stuff. <laughs> Even just to lay down a straight up slap, you know, 120 milliseconds through some crappy Ibanez delay or like a pedal or something is is going to give you a really cool flavor that you can't get in Pro Tools. Plus, it's locked in there for good if you record it to its oh, own Oh, yeah, track. it's printed, and printing is, is huge. All right, cool. Great tip. Um, now, let's talk about the business stuff for just one sec. Uh, not everybody wants to do this for a hobby. Some people would like to do this for a living. What advice do you have as maybe a resource for the business side, maybe some online tool or just advice in general that you want to give people? Ooh, I wish I could have some. A lot of people ask me about this and, uh, you know, I, I can just say that I'm thankful to have the greatest manager for the last 20 years, the same guy, Frank McDonough, mm -hmm. and he handles so much for me and is such a great sounding board and a listening. I mean, he listens to the mix that I just did and says, Hey, I love this, or that sounded a little weird, but not just a business manager, but also like, you know, a confidant and friend, but finding someone like that that can do the talking for you that can do all the hard stuff like AFM contracts and you know travel and so that you can you know stick your head into the studio and not be thinking about business and money I guess mm -hmm. it's, so I mean it's hard you can't just like go get a producer manager I know that but I guess that would be you know if if you can I highly suggest it what do you remember about the early years when you were recording in Minneapolis and you were just trying to make ends meet? I mean, it sounded I remember, like you were trading for uh, alternate currency with the reggae bands too. So maybe yeah, it didn't matter so I, much. I, I mean, honestly, a lot of it was just like uncomfortable discussions about $200, you know? Yeah. So I'm glad I don't have to do that anymore. Yeah. But, you know, now with PayPal and Venmo and all that, you could, you know, just send them an invoice and, you know, hopefully they pay it. Or part of it is just hang in there until the day comes where you do get to cross paths with somebody who can help you take care of the business for you. Yeah, definitely. All right. Now, how about an organizational online resource? You know, you talked about Hightail. You talked about iMessaging, things like that. What do you want to share uh, as far as keeping stuff organized? How do you keep your shit together using online tools? I mean, I had a Drobo for a while and that just kind of went south after about a year. Drobo, is that Dropbox? No, Drobo is like a, a one box with six hard drives in it. And it's uh, its own proprietary software. There's another company called Synology that makes it. It's basically like 
raid style backup of your system. So I tried that, but it just comes with so many strings attached, like carbon copy cloner. And mm -hmm. I mean, I'm looking at my desktop right now. I'm, I've got about 10 hard drives on it. So, you know, and I would say eight out of 10 of those haven't changed in a year, but the other two are constantly, you know, new stuff's being added and stuff. So I guess, you know, the way I back up now, I, the Drobo was a problem, so I got rid of it. The way I back up now is I buy a 4T external SATA drive and I stick it in one of those USB toasters and I back up the big drive that I've been working on for the last month, drag everything on there or I carbon copy clone it depending on how much data there is. Mm -hmm. And then I bring it home and I have a copy of this 4T drive that has my last you know, four months of work on it. And then I have a separate copy at home in case there's fire or, you know, theft or something. So at least I have it somewhere else. Um, I use Dropbox mostly for client listening, like MP3 posting and mm -hmm. mix posting and Hightail for the big stuff because you can trace it. I really like to see your file has been downloaded at 12.23 p.m. by this guy. And then you know it got there. Yeah. Do you have to um, keep files secure online? Are you working on projects where, you know, things are, you can't risk them getting shared, for example? And is, is there anything, a tip there that you want to share? Uh, Lidge, I wish. Right, right, fair enough, all right. But, you know, no, I mean, sometimes I'll have a password protected folder or I'll erase as soon as the project is done. Right, right. But yeah. a lot, you know, these days it's it's like, you know, let's get the music out there. I mean, no one's leaking but, I guess they are. But, you know, I'm not working with, like, top 40. Who was it that had their record delivered in an armored truck back in the 90s or the <laughs> early 2000s? <Money. laughs> All right, cool. Well, um, you know, and I guess Hightail, if you share that link, if it did get to the wrong people, it would just be registered. You know, you'd see who downloaded it when, too. So I guess that would. Uh, but really, I think it's a non-issue these days. Yeah. All right. So now, uh, let's see, where, where, where are we next? Uh, last two questions are hypothetical. This one is imagine you're starting over again or you're giving advice to somebody who is starting over, going to a new town, you need a simple setup to get started recording. You got to find musicians to record and work with and you got to make ends meet. What advice would you have for those three things? Gear, people, money. Yeah, I mean, gear, it's like you got to buy a laptop and a UA Apollo or something and, and a Pro Tools subscription and a basic setup of plugins. And you just need a couple mics. I don't know, SM58, 57, doesn't really matter. Just as long as it's not harsh, something that is, you know, that you can sing through and that you can put in front of an acoustic guitar. And then in terms of meeting people, I mean, you know, in Minneapolis, there's a bunch of music schools here. Um, I call them Pro Tools schools. Uh -huh. But there's usually a great resource for finding young musicians who want to record, who need to record, who want to collaborate at these, they're not like Berkeley School of Music, but you know, there's places probably in Nashville, even where there's, you know, and you just go hang out there, see, see who's there, go to the, the student recitals and meet that drummer who's amazing and 19 and doesn't know anyone and then just start making friends with them. And hey, do you have a band? I'd love to record you. Let's try it. So maybe something like that. Yeah. Um, how about uh, paying some bills initially when you're getting started with something? Do you have any kids? Are you giving this advice yourself? Yeah, I have a child. So <laughs> I don't know. Paying bills is tough. 
I mean, for me, it was always gigging. So I was, I was, I had a studio, but I was also in bands and that, and that doesn't mean just, you know, your cool indie band. I'm talking about weddings and bar mitzvahs and right. cover, cover material and, you know, out in the suburbs and just get in a band and make a hundred bucks a night and take like it from that. there. Good advice. Just be willing to work. Um, okay. Yep. So here's the last one, John. We're going to take the studio way back machine, go back. You're going to go uh, back to maybe Boston and find young John Fields. Tap yourself on the shoulder. You turn around. What are you doing here, older John Fields? And, uh, and you say, well, I've come to give you this one, this bit of advice. Here's the single most important thing you need to know to be a rock star of the studio yourself one day. What advice would you give yourself? That's impossible, Lidge. Impossible. <laughs> but, I mean, we didn't have the internet. We, we couldn't really research Recording studios. I mean, look, I read Beatle books. That's as close as I could get to like learning what to do in the recording studio. So, you know, I, what I missed out was, I mean, if there were books like on recording, I didn't read them. Yeah. And I wish I did because I, I wish I had a little more of an electronics background. I was a, like a computer guy like with my Apple II and all, but no, I didn't know about phasing or why, you know, flipping the under snare makes it sound fatter. You know, all those things. It right. took until I met people along the way. Like the and phase say, on the overheads being out yeah, of Yeah, just phase. like, I mean, why does that even matter? You know, and I realized now, how come I didn't, just that's such a simple thing to know then and to, re, to recognize when it's wrong that, you know, I wish I had known that when I was a teenager. Well, I, I guess when you're young too, you listen to music coming out of speakers and it's all cool, <laughs> even when it's yep, totally it, screwed up. And that shit was probably out of phase too. So. <laughs> well, John, thanks so much for being on Recording Studio Rockstars with us. It's been a blast listening to you tell stories and share you know, your thoughts on recording. Let our listeners know how they can find out more about you. How can they go uh, follow you or get in touch with you if they need to make their next best hit record? Um, you can check out, uh, just search my name on the internet. And uh, probably the first thing that comes up is going to be my manager's website and I'm on Instagram and Twitter and all that under the name Strawberrius. Okay, And cool. uh, that's how you can get in touch with me. Um, would you like to suggest one record for people to go listen to right now? <sighs> wow. I've been on an XTC tip lately. So, I mean, if you don't know about XTC Skylarking, which came out in 1986 and was produced by Todd Rundgren, um, by all means, study that and uh, let's talk about it. Okay, Groovy. We'll include a link in the show notes. John, thanks so much, man. It's been a blast hanging out with you. I look forward to meeting you in person. Thanks, Lidge. We'll see you around the hop stop. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly, man. Cool, Take man. Care. Thanks. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RSRockstars to 33444. Again, that's RSRockstars to 33444. And I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music. Music.